This is the fifth talk in a series on the five fundamentals, titled The Fifth Fundamental, Perfect Realization, recorded February 9th, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This is going to be the fifth in a series of talks I've been giving on the five fundamentals and the seven stages of a spiritual path. So today we're going to talk about the fifth and last fundamental, which is the way of selflessness is the very way in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. Thus, the way of selflessness constitutes not only the perfection of human life, but of the entire world as well. Now, the first four fundamentals are very pragmatic. They address the question, is there an end to suffering? And if so, how can it be brought about? And this is what most people are primarily interested in. It uh, speaks to our personal lives. Whether you're on a spiritual path or not, uh, all, everybody that I have met uh, has always had this as an ongoing primary interest in their life. They want to put an end to suffering by whatever means they think is going to happen, whether they're going to pursue uh, worldly goods and uh, wealth and power and so forth, whether they think they're going to put an end to suffering by getting uh, their soulmate or uh, whatever it is. This is what motivates uh, almost all of our activities. And so the first four fundamentals address that directly. And mystics, of course, say, uh, yes, there is an end to suffering. Uh, not necessarily the way most people think they're going to put an end to suffering, but there is one. And the reason that's possible is because suffering has a cause, has a root cause. And the root cause of suffering is the ignorance of reality. Literally, we ignore reality. And uh, this ignorance of reality is the, the, the basis upon which a whole causal chain develops that ends up in a life of suffering. The end of suffering, then, is a gnosis of reality. And gnosis here means a direct, immediate kind of knowledge. So it's not intellectual knowledge, and it's not even experiential knowledge in the sense that uh, experience passes away, but it is a direct apprehension of that reality. So obviously, if, if our problem is we're ignoring reality, the solution is to know reality. And then the way to this gnosis, to this knowledge, this knowingness, is through selflessness. And all spiritual paths, the central guiding principle of all spiritual paths, whether Buddhist or Hindu or Christian, is selflessness. Selflessness means uh, looking for that self and living from a position that is not coming out of a sense of protecting and enhancing that self. And this is the whole uh, process of a, a spiritual path, learning to do that. And so seeing in your own experience whether what the mystics claim is true, which is that there is no self ultimately. This is what the first four fundamentals are about, just what I described. In one form or another, they, they're a little technical, but they're guiding you to these simple basic sorts of truths and ways to explore these truths for yourself. 
But then people also ask larger questions, like, why is all this here? I mean, all this, the, the rug, the house, stones, trees, rocks, cats, animals, birds, stars, why is it all here? Why are we here? Well, as human beings, what are we doing here? Here you sort of wake up, you find yourself in this body stumbling around, but what are you really doing here? What's, what's the purpose? Is there some connection between why all this is here and why we are here? In short, it's really the question of what's the meaning of life? It's an age-old question. Some people are interested in it all through their lives, not many, but if you have a very philosophical bent or whatever, uh, you might be. But most people in their lives, at some points in their lives, this question comes to the surface. It certainly does for most teenagers. Adolescents go through a period of wondering, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why am I here? What should I do with my life? And then uh, towards midlife, a lot of people have what's called a midlife crisis. And they've uh, done a lot of things in the world, and maybe they've had some success, or they have some stability and security in the family and so forth. They've done the right things. But uh, towards midlife, you begin to look ahead, and it's no longer just endless uh, more, 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 it starts to be that downhill uh, slope and you start looking at death and that raises this question again. Well, uh, really, have I, have I fulfilled my role in life? Is this really the meaning of life? Just, you know, having family, job and so forth. Is there more to life? And then, of course, as people get very close to death, this often comes up. What is the meaning of life? Or is there something I've missed? It's your last chance, so to speak. So the fifth fundamental addresses this larger, we might call, philosophical kind of question. What is the meaning of life? So let's ask in the beginning, why is all this here, from a mystic's point of view? Now, we already talked a little about this when we discussed the first fundamental, part of which says, the appearance of an objective world distinguishable from a subjective self is but the imaginary form in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. So what does this mean? Well, the appearance of an objective world. That is a world that seems to be other than you, outside of you. So you look around and there's a house over there and there's a trees over there and there's stars and there's the sun and the moon and so forth. And all this seem, these seem to be objects out there that fill this world. And they seem to be distinguishable from myself, whoever I am, whatever that is. That they're out there, and I'm in here, and there seems to be some line of distinction, some demarcation, some boundary. So there's the subject, the observer, the experiencer of all this, and then there's all this. And what this fundamental says is that this form of a distinction, this basic distinction between I and other self and world, is imaginary. Insofar as it's imaginary, it's real in that sense, but it's not ultimately absolutely real. It doesn't have any substantiality to it. It's a creation of the mind. And that this is the form, the form of self and world, of human and cosmos, in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. 
So what does this last uh, phrase mean? Which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. From a mystic's point of view, consciousness, naked awareness, basic uh, knowingness, if you like, is the fundamental principle of the world. And you, one way to uh, think of this is you could subtract out all the objects from the world, and what would be left would be pure consciousness, pure awareness. This is why the other part of the first fundamental says consciousness alone is absolutely real. And in fact, we all experience this every night if you get a good night's sleep. Every night in deep sleep, dreamless sleep, all objects disappear from consciousness. But consciousness is still there. One of the purposes of cultivating dream yoga and sleep yoga, which is done particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, is to become lucid throughout the whole night so that when this happens, you can uh, see this. It's not easy, but it's uh, not that difficult either. So this is the basic reality consciousness, and all these forms that arise are created through this power of imagination that makes distinctions and creates these forms. You can think of uh, consciousness as, in a sense, containing in itself, in unmanifest state, all these forms. And in the talk about the first fundamental, which I gave several months ago, I used the image of a blackboard, that a, a blank blackboard contains in it, in potential, in unmanifest state, all possible forms that can appear on a plane. But we don't see them unless we make some distinctions. And one way to make a distinction is to take a piece of chalk and to chalk out and hide part of the blackboard under the chalk mark, let's say I make a circle, and then the form of a circle pops out at you. You see, but actually that, that form was already in a certain sense implicit in the chalkboard. I just had to, to, to negate something to make it appear. Another metaphor for this, none of these are going to be perfect because the metaphors will always break down at some point. But another metaphor for this is a movie projection. White light contains all the colors, all possible colors. They're all in an unmanifest state in that white light. Now, the way to bring out the colors is to put filters in front of the light. And what the filters do is suppress all but a particular range of color. So a red filter cuts out all of the light except red light. It allows that spectrum of the color range to get through. So in a movie theater, could look up, go into the projection booth, you would see white light being projected onto this film. And the film is nothing but a little series of filters. Each frame of the film has filters in different places. And as the light goes through, uh, various bands of the spectrum are suppressed. And only uh, what's only allowed through are red and green and blue and so forth. And then that creates a whole little scene of forms on the screen. 
in mystical terms, the way the world manifests is through this power of imagination, of making distinctions, of actually suppressing uh, parts of consciousness, if you like. My own teacher, Dr. Wolf, called them creating zones of unconsciousness, relative unconsciousness. And then all these uh, forms appear. And they have to appear piecemeal. And this is how time is created. They can't all appear at once, because when they're all there at once, you just have the white light. So if you want to know all the possibilities, all the potential forms and colors that are in this uh, white light, you have to, through a process of time, or reveal them one at a time, or multiple uh, parts in the time. And this is also infinite, by the way. There's no end to the possibilities of how I can suppress this light, because I can make very fine distinctions and distinctions between those distinctions. But it has to come out through time. Here's how the great Sufi, Ibn Arabi, explains this. And he talks about consciousness in terms of God here. But he doesn't mean a God like a big daddy in the sky. That which is with God is infinite. In other words, what is already present in God, so to speak, is infinite. But it is impossible for the infinite to enter existence. So everything that enters into existence is finite. Moreover, the infinite does not enter into existence all at once. Rather, it enters little by little with no end. Does, does everybody follow this idea here? Just like the white light contains infinite possibilities for projection onto this screen... They all can't come on at once because they all cancel each other out and you've got nothing but white light. So you have to, have, uh, you have to make them finite. You have to border them. You have to make distinctions. And then they can come in, and then they have to come in one after another, one after another. So in a sense, it's very much like a movie. In Christian tradition, that which is with God is what? Does anybody know? In the beginning was what? And the Word was what? The Word was with God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The principle of this manifestation is already with God. And by the way, that's a, the Word is a translation of the Greek term logos, which means much more than just spoken word. It means order and uh, logic, our, where logic comes from it and all that. Uh, all this is already inherent in God. And the, it's the Logos that then produces this whole world, according to the Christian tradition. The word is also uh, called the Son, because the, the word of God is also it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the word is the Son. Theologians, exoteric theologians, uh, take this to mean that at some point in the beginning of time, you know, uh, God suddenly created all this. The Logos created all this. But mystics say it's happening all the time. It's not something that just happened there in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, all that. Here's what Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, says. The Father speaks the Son always in unity and pours out in him all created things. This is a poetic way of saying the same thing. The Father is speaking the Word. And word, again, why are we going to see word and language crops up in all these traditions? Somehow the, the world is made of language. 
In, uh, in the Islamic tradition, it's made of the divine names of God, all of which are inherent in God. Why? Because language creates distinctions, breaks things up, right? We find a very similar idea in Kabbalism, the Jewish uh, mystical tradition. And this is how Gershom Sholem, a great Kabbalist scholar, explains it. All creation is from the point of view of God, nothing but an expression of his hidden self, that begins and ends by giving itself a name. The holy name of God, the perpetual act of creation, all that lives is an expression of God's language. Again, a beautiful way of putting this. And in those days, they didn't have movies and stuff like that. And one of the uh, pow most powerful metaphors is to talk about language because you can understand how language breaks up the world. It's the, through the process of naming that we know things. So all this is God's language, God's speech, God's naming, God giving him, herself, itself, various names. And then it all comes into being. Zen master Wang Po says, When the lotus opened and the universe was disclosed, there arose the duality of absolute and sentient world or rather the absolute, appeared in two aspects which taken together comprise pure perfection. These aspects are unchanging reality and potential form. The unchanging reality, Buddha mind, Dharmakaya, that's the one aspect, and which does not have any form, which is formless and infinite and boundless, and so forth. And the other aspect is the world of form appearing, what we see, these appearances. Right? You see it's the same idea expressed differently through all these traditions? Uh, there's a, a, an analog to this in physics. All the equations of physics uh, can be seen as equations of what's called symmetry breaking. <laughs> And the idea is that initially, before the Big Bang, there is perfect symmetry. An example of symmetry is a circle. It's one of the most perfect forms of symmetry. But even a circle isn't perfect symmetry in the sense that the outside and the inside are not symmetrical. The inside is concave, the outside is convex. Perfect symmetry would be unmanifest. Nothing would appear. That is perfect symmetry. And the equations of physics describe a process of symmetry breaking, and that's how this world of form comes into being. It's the same thing described in mathematical language by physics. So then we can ask the question, though, why would consciousness want to manifest this world of form, this cosmos? And here we have to get a little anthropomorphic. Just because of the limitations of our language, we're already asking why would consciousness want to do that? We're thinking of consciousness, starting to think of consciousness as a sort of being and all that. Consciousness is not a being. Consciousness is being, the beingness of things, as uh, St. Augustine said. Well, the mystics give two related answers or categories of answers here. The first one is that all this is a manifestation of love or bliss. Ananda, it's play. Here's what Lali Shwari says. O Lali, creation and sustenance, disillusion, concealment and grace are God's divine play. 
she's expressing this Hindu notion that all this is the Leela of God. Leela means this sort of divine play. The great Christian mystic Dionysius the Arapagate said, Divine love is ecstatic. Thus the very cause of the universe himself, because of his beautiful and good love for everything, becomes, as it were, transported out of himself in his providence for all beings. So we have this idea of this overflowingness that's motivated by love, that just just can't stand to have it all contained and has to uh, display it. Same thing. The second answer is for the sake of a communication, a revelation, a knowing, a knowledge. The, the universe somehow comes into being for the sake of this communication. Here's a Tibetan Buddhist, Longchenpa, and he says the cosmos is a communication of an unborn field. The unborn field is the Buddha mind, the, the infinite, that unchanging reality Huang Po talked about. He says, everything that exists and is designated displays itself as linguistic communication coming from the unborn field and is gathered into this inexplicable inner reality of communication, the supreme ordering principles symphony. Interesting that he relates this back to linguistic, the the idea of a verbal communication, that all this is the language of the Buddha mind. And he also uh, has this wonderful comparison here at the end with music. The Supreme Ordering Principles Symphony. So somehow the cosmos is the symphony created by the Supreme Ordering Principle, which is Buddha mind. The contemporary Hindu mystic Ananda Moyamai says, He alone is, therefore he himself speaks to himself for the sake of his own revelation. So we get this sense of this revelation, communication. Ibn Arabi combines both notions in what is my favorite way of expressing this. And in, uh, in the Islamic tradition, there's a hadith, a saying of the prophet. He asked God, he said, when people ask me, why did I create all this? What should I tell them? And God says, tell them I was a treasure that longed to be known. So Ibn Arabi's commentary is, the movement that is the coming into existence of the cosmos is a movement of love. This is shown by the saying, I was an unknown treasure and longed to be known, so that but for this longing, the cosmos would not have become manifest in itself. So here is the sense of love and longing to be known, so we have both sort of ideas combined into one. From all these traditions and all these descriptions, and notice we're pulling from very diverse traditions. Judaism, which speaks of everything as the the language of God, to uh, the Tibetan tradition, which says everything is the linguistic communication of the Buddha mind. But you see that even the same metaphors keep cropping up from tradition to tradition as mystics search around in their minds for something that's understandable that they can try to explain this to people with. But we're getting the idea, really, of God, of the divine, of consciousness, as uh, some sort of artist, would be the closest we could think of it from our own lives. Some sort of artist, a musician, a dancer, and that the cosmos is that artist's performance. The world of forms is really a performance. 
And consciousness engages in this performance for the same reason any artist would engage in a performance, and that is in a way to discover its own potential. If any of you have ever done anything creative, or danced or painted or written poems or books or whatever, you know that before you start, you don't know really what's gonna, how it's going to end up. You might have some idea. But one of the reasons you do it is to find out what the potential is or that is already within you that comes out. So you, I don't know, create a little tune, and afterwards you listen to it and say, oh, how wonderful. You didn't know that tune before you yourself uh, did it. But where did it come from? It came from you. So when we say that all this uh, cosmos is a way of consciousness perfectly realizing itself, it means to realize, to make manifest a potentiality that would not be known otherwise. The way you might say an artist realizes their dreams, to actually put it out there in form. Perfectly realize means partly to completely realize. The word perfect comes from the Latin par factum, which means to make complete. So it has that idea, but it also has the idea of some sort of aesthetic perfection, because we can make ordinary things complete, and the, the nuance of perfection isn't necessarily in there. So it carries both ideas. It is, it is the completion of divinity to manifest itself, and to do it perfectly the way a great artist does it perfectly. So then let's ask, what is the human role in this performance? If we think of the cosmos as a performance of consciousness, a performance of the divine, what is our individual human role? This is the most paradoxical part of all mystical teachings because the I, the self here, is this tremendously paradoxical designation. So we'll try to understand this in a couple of stages. First, in order to be known, a performance requires an audience. If you, in your sleep, started creating beautiful poetry, and you lived alone, and you were asleep, it would not be known. No one would be around to know it. A dancer uh, who creates a dance knows it from the inside, but that's a very different perspective from having an audience outside. It's not a complete knowing of the dancer, unless there's some audience directly perceiving. So the very act of manifestation for the sake of revelation requires already this first primal division between the subject and the object, an experiencer and an experience, a seer and what is seen. You understand? Otherwise, we don't have a knowing going on. This is why Lali Shwari says, hidden within the highest principle is the world which consists of the seer and the seen. And in almost all mystical traditions, they will say the first distinction is between subject and object. The minute there is an object, there is a subject. They are two sides of the same boundary, so to speak. 
one cannot really exist without the other. So the human being is the seer, the audience of the cosmos. Here's the way Ibn Arabi expresses this. He says of man, for the reality, he is as the pupil is for the eye through which the act of seeing takes place. It is by man's existence that the cosmos subsists. If it was not for us, the cosmos would not subsist. Now, it's funny, you can test this in your own experience. Look around the room. There is the cosmos, in this case, this room, and there's who? The observer, right? When Ibn Arabi talks about the human being is like the pupil through which seeing takes place, this is not anything very mysterious. This is what's happening right now in your own experience. This is what's happening. You are the form in which seeing is taking place of the whole cosmos, right? Not only that, a very interesting thing about this, and we can even think about this in materialist terms, the cosmos, the whole cosmos, is appearing to you and only you in this particular form. By what I mean by that is, you may think that somebody next to you is seeing the same thing, and, and in a certain sense, when you talk about it, they seem to be seeing the same thing, but they are not. Michael and I here are not seeing the same thing. I'm looking from this angle, and Michael's looking from that angle. And if we took two different photographs and put them together, they'd be similar, but they'd be slightly different. You see what I mean? I'm hearing the same sound, somewhat, that Michael's hearing, I think I'm hearing, but actually because of the structure of my particular ear and certain peculiarities of my ear, like I, I spent three months next to an artillery battery, so I have a few little dead spots, the sounds aren't exactly the same as they are in his ear. In fact, there's nothing about the way the cosmos appears to you that's exactly the same as it appears to the person next to you, even the touch, the sensation. When you look at the stars and the moon and the sun, it's all manifesting precisely and only for you in that precise form. No one else. Each of us is a unique observer of the cosmos. You could say God cannot see itself fully and completely without you, absolutely essential to the cosmos. There'd be a piece missing that God would not see. You see what I'm talking about? We construct in our minds, out of thought and imagination, some existing world out there that we all share, but we never experience that world except as a thought. Our immediate, direct experience of the world is ours only. We are the audience, and this world would not be here without us. It would not manifest. Another interesting way to look at this is, uh, maybe you've seen some of these pictures in you know, uh, Time Life books on astronomy. And they'll have some pictures of the uh, solar system just forming. You'll see the sun and you'll see molten, uh, I don't know, streaks going around it before the Earth is solidified. I don't know if that's the current theory or not, but whatever. And then you look at that and say, yes, that's the way it was. But it wasn't at all. If there was no one there to look at it, from what point of view? This, this picture assumes a point of view and it assumes you to look at it from that point of view to be there. And without that, it's not there. You see what I'm driving at? This is 
Part of what mystics mean when they say you have to really investigate your own experience closely in detail, not just accept what you've been taught about what the world is by your peers and your parents and uh, your tradition, wherever you came from, but really look into your own experience. It's magical in ways that we overlook, ignore. Okay. The second, a performance needs a place to happen. It needs a theater, so to speak. We have to have somewhere where this performance can manifest, where it can be realized. In mystical cosmologies, that theater is the human form, which, as I said before, is the first form. Now, by human, I, I simply mean here this, your own experience of being an observer and observed. That naked, bare experience. In Kabbalism, the concept of creation is that, first of all, God is this absolute fullness, just like that white light is absolute fullness. And the very first act of creation is a negation. The cosmos as fullness, by the way, is called ensof, which means in Hebrew, endless, infinite. And the very first act of creation, it's not even an act, but before creation can happen, there has to be a negation. And in Hebrew, that's, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation, tzitzum, and that is the denial of that infinity so that something finite can appear. So then Gershom Sholem explains what happens next. He says, oh, and then the final thing is there's this idea of Adam Kadman, the original man. Adam Kadman is nothing but a first configuration of the divine light which flows from the essence of Ensof into the primeval space of Tzimtzum. He therefore is the first and highest form in which the divinity begins to manifest itself after Tzimtzum. The very first form of manifestation is the human form, this archetypal human form. Ibn Arabi says the same thing, the exact same ideas in Islam, and in fact, they probably shared this because there was a lot of sharing between the Kabbalists and the Sufis. Adam was the very principle of reflection for that mirror of the cosmos, called in the terminology of the folk, the great man. Adam, man, human, first is a principle of reflection. We're not to imagine here some body appearing out of nowhere but our most fundamental experience, subject-object relation. The Christian Julian of Norwich puts it this way. She says, For in mankind is comprehended all, that is, all that is made, and the maker of all. For God is in man, and so in man is all. So, again, this is not about human bodies. We're not talking about evolutionary theory here, about how human bodies evolved or something. We're talking about an act of consciousness. We're not even talking about an act really that happened in the beginning of time. We're talking about what's happening right now. But in a certain sense, you might say in a vertical dimension rather than a horizontal dimension of unfolding. And as far as consciousness itself is concerned, there's no problem whatsoever. This is wonderful. This is great. This is what's supposed to happen. Consciousness creates a form, a stage, and an observer in which it can perform so it can get to know all its potentiality. And this is why 
in the first fundamental it says consciousness creates this form of the subject and the object in order to perfectly realize itself. But the distinction between subject and object is imaginary and consciousness knows it's imaginary. Just the way you go to a movie and you enjoy a really good movie and you never lose track of what you're actually seeing, that it is a movie. You see what I mean? However, this unfoldment is not yet perfect. And this, I'm having to speak here in a slightly relativistic sense, as all languages. It's not yet a perfect realization because there's one little imperfection in all this. Consciousness in this human form, if we can talk that way, forgets or misapprehends or ignores this imaginary character of its own distinctions. That's the fundamental ignorance. Not the fact that there's a distinction, there's nothing wrong with distinctions, as long as we know what their true character is. It's when we ignore the imaginary character of the distinction and we take it to be real that we fall into this uh, world of samsara as it's expressed in the East, uh, this veil of suffering as expressed in the West and so forth. This is why Rumi, another great Sufi, writes, this world of non-existence appears as existent things, and that world of existence is exceedingly hidden. This world is non-existent, but it appears as existing things. We in our existences are non-existences. Because of the darkness in your eye, you imagine that a nothing is a something. Here's the metaphor of blindness now for ignorance, that somehow there's something we don't see, that we imagine what is really a nothing is to be a something. Not nothing in the sense that there is an appearance here, but there's no substantiality in there. There's nothing in here but consciousness and its distinctions. Here's the Buddhist sage uh, Nargajuna's analysis as it's rendered by his commentator Venkata Ramana. And let's go through this a little bit. The Buddhists, uh, you know, they're mo probably the most uh, uh, logical of all the mystical traditions. And they have these wonderful, quite precise analyses. And he's one of the great, great uh, Buddhist sages. He says, the sense of I is at a crossroads. It has a double reference. It shares at once in two orders of being, the conditioned and the unconditioned. The conditioned is the manifest, and the, the cosmos of forms, and the unconditioned is the unmanifest, pure consciousness, consciousness itself, right? But under ignorance, the sense of I comes to be applied exclusively to the object with which the self-conscious intellect has identified itself. In other words, here's a form, the form of the human form, including body, thoughts, feelings, and so forth. These are all forms. This sense of I ceases to identify and ceases to realize it has any relation to that unmanifest side of being and starts to identify with this manifest side of being, what you call as a human form, as an uh, embodied form. 
And with this identification of the intellect with a specific object, the ultimate meaning of self, which is self-being or underivedness. Underivedness, again, is like the, the Buddha mind, the consciousness itself. It doesn't derive from anything. It's primal. So it's uh, the ultimate meaning of the self, which is this pure consciousness, underived consciousness, comes to be applied only wrongly to this very object. And thus, the derived comes to be mistaken for the underived. This world of forms comes to be mistaken for an ultimately existing thing. And yet it's not an ultimately existing thing. It's a derived thing. It derives from consciousness. But we take it to be solid, fixed, out there, existing in its own right. This misapplication of this sense of unconditionedness then comes to be extended to everything that the differentiating intellect alights upon. Every particular individual entity comes to be endowed with an underivedness and substantiality. This is the same thing Rumi said. You see, he's just being more precise here. We endow non-existent things with existence. And we ignore what is true existence, the real reality, which is unmanifested. It, 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 it doesn't have a form. And thus arises the clinging with regard to everything. In other words, once we think all this is real, we have to seize on it, grab it, you know, have it, hold it, so forth. The modern term for this is reification. To reify means to take a distinction that's imaginary and to treat it as though it were real and come to believe it's real. And the most um, common everyday example of this, and most of you uh, experience this uh, once at least every 24 hours in a 24-hour cycle, is dreaming. When we're awake, we know that dreams are purely imaginary. They're created our, out of our imagination. When we're asleep, unless we're dreaming lucidly, we don't. We reify the dream. We take it to be real. And we respond to it as though it were real. So particularly in the case of a nightmare, you know, if uh, somebody's chasing you with a hatchet, you're running away and you're terrified and you're, ex you're responding as though this were actually really happening. And then you wake up and you go, oh, thank God it was just a dream, just imaginary. That is precisely what reification means. And in fact, that is why dream is one of the most common metaphors used to describe the true character of this cosmos. And you'll find this in all traditions. Here's just one example from Shankar, who is a great Hindu sage. He says, the waking state is only a prolonged dream. The phenomenal universe exists in the mind. Man seems to be in bondage to birth and death. This is a fictitious creation of the mind, not a reality. The mind creates attachments to the body and the things of this world. Thus it binds a man as a beast is tied by a rope. You see, this is the exact same, uh, really, analysis uh, as Nagarjuna gave and as Rumi gave, only he's now using it in terms of a metaphor of a dream. We take it to be real, we seize and cling upon it, and that is the attachment that binds us. Uh, the Christian mystic Catherine of Genova, uh, Genoa uh, uses the metaphor of blindness. They do not see except with blind eyes, since their desire is fixed on passing things, and so they are deceived and act like fools. So in our blindness, we fix on what are, uh, what are essentially passing, ephemeral, transitory things that have no substance, and we seize on them, and so we begin acting like fools. We're deceived by this world. See, it's all the same in every tradition. So the problem is not 
not the fact there are distinctions. This is very important. The distinctions are absolutely essential to the play of consciousness. They are absolutely essential to the manifestation of all this, all of which is nothing but uh, this divine play. It's the reification of the distinction. It's not realizing, recognizing, not knowing that the distinction is imaginary. It has no ultimate reality. It is a derived, a created reality. And as we said in our discussion of the uh, second fundamental, it is this root here, this root ignorance, this root misapprehension that then creates this whole chain that leads to uh, this world of suffering that we experience. So it was intended to be a performance of love, of joy, <laughs> of ecstasy. Uh, and our illusion turns out to be uh, a hell at, at its worst case. And its best case, you know, come see, come saw. Sometimes okay, but you know. A world riddled with anxieties, frustrations, disappointments, all those things. So... For consciousness to perfectly realize itself, you must attain this gnosis. You must cease ignoring this. You must know fully, perfectly, completely what is going on here. Now, this is the difficult aspect of talking about this. In one sense, consciousness, in its barest sense, knows already. It's not like God is deceived. And yet, in another sense, if we want to say consciousness in form is deceived. And this is the imperfection in our lives, and it's the imperfection in the whole cosmos, since it's only through us that the cosmos manifests. You might say, God wants you to be happy, perfectly, completely happy, because your happiness is God's happiness. This is God's dance of joy. And since ultimately there's no difference, it's one consciousness, if you aren't joyful, God's not joyful. That's an anthropomorphic way of saying it, but it's true. It, it, it carries a truth, let me put it that way. So then, what is the meaning of human life? Well, here's how Ananda Moyamai expresses it. To strive to find himself is man's duty as a human being. Of all creatures, man alone has been endowed with the potential capacity to realize God. Thus, the search after truth is his bounden duty. In human form, in human form, we can attain this gnosis. We can come to this perfect realization. And, in a certain sense, this is what we were created for. And this is accomplished through walking a spiritual path. Whether, by the way, it's some formal path, you join some group or a tradition, or maybe you have no idea what you're doing, it's always going to be the way of selflessness. So it doesn't matter what you call yourself, or if you think you're on a spiritual path in any sort of formal sense, that path is the path of selflessness. So, this is why the fundamental says, that selflessness is the very way that consciousness perfectly realizes itself. It is the path in which this consciousness in human form realizes that it is the very consciousness it's been seeking. No difference, no duality. This division was imaginary. 
This is why Rumi says, speaking of himself, when the heart was annihilated within him, he remained, him is, is Allah, he remained. Then it understood the object of his words. This is Allah's words. I myself am the seeker and the sought. There hasn't been any individual uh, I, uh, limited being here, anything. This consciousness that is viewing is that consciousness. It ain't anywhere else. Not some super consciousness up there. This is it. This is the game, if you like. You haven't been seeking God. You think you're the one who's seeking God. God has been seeking God through you. God was a treasure that longed to be known. And if you like, God created you so God could know itself. And this process is the knowing, you see? This is what's so beautiful. This is, is this experience right here. Our lives are the knowing. In reality, as Ramana Maharshi says, the self itself is the world. The self itself is I. The self itself is God. All is Shiva, the self. All these distinctions are imaginary. You are the world. You are not living in the world. You are the world. You are not some being living in the world, some observing being, any more than God is some being up in the sky. You are both that consciousness that is getting to know itself. And this is precisely because uh, when you attain gnosis, enlightenment, when you fully understand this play, then that is the perfect realization, the perfect fulfillment of uh, the treasure that longed to be known. So by, by traveling this path of selflessness, this way of selflessness, this quest, the spiritual, mystical quest, at the end of it, that is the way consciousness comes perfectly to realize itself. And because you are the world, that is the perfection of the world. There is no difference. This is why the Buddhists say, if one looks upon the world with eyes dimmed in ignorance, he, he will see it filled with error. But if he looks upon it with clear wisdom, he will see it as the world of enlightenment itself. Mike mentioned in his introductory talk the saying of Jesus, the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth, only men don't see it. The same teaching here, isn't it? Christian, Buddhist, what difference does it make? The principles are the same. Now let me make a last comment here from a relative point of view. Because obviously... Uh, as a historical fact, few people attain enlightenment gnosis in any one generation out of all the people who were born. So if someone doesn't attain uh, uh, enlightenment in this lifetime, as they would say in the East, doesn't mean that they're a failure. First of all, this is like a game of hide-and-seek, really. And it goes on, way beyond physical death. Physical death is relatively, really unimportant. This particular one life, as we conceive it, in one little form, is nothing but a blink in the eye of consciousness. So in one sense, we are absolutely crucial to the universe. We are crucial to the universe. But this game, if you like, continues 
after this death. However you want to think of that or conceive of it to yourself, if you want to think of going to other worlds and whatnot, if you want to think of reincarnating this world, all these are ways of expressing this fact. Consciousness cannot die. Consciousness continues to produce forms. And it will continue to produce forms until it wakes up and realizes itself. That is the name of the game. So it's not a question of failing if you don't uh, attain Gnosis in this lifetime. Uh, by the way, if you walk a spiritual path, your chances are extremely good you will attain it at the moment of physical death. That's the prime opportunity here. So that's sort of the culmination of life. In a way, it's a little freaky to wake up in the middle of it. Um, but uh, it is, in a certain sense, our duty to try. Under delusion, we experience the world as uh, self and, and uh, subject and object and self and world and self and God. And in that sense, it really is our duty to try to find that divinity. Not our duty to walk any, anybody's particular path, but our duty to answer that deepest calling within ourselves, to answer that deepest question within ourselves. Who am I? What am I doing here? What is this all about? It's a question that gets buried over from all these worldly concerns. But to keep that question alive, there's a reason that question springs up in the human heart. It's not idle question at all. It's the deepest question. And whatever you do to find the answer to that question, and if you do not sh stop short with anything but absolute certainty, that will lead you. Simone Weil said, you know, in spiritual things, anything less than absolutely certainty will not do. Keep doubt alive. You may settle on some conception of the world, but you begin to doubt it. That's a good thing. That means throw it out. Keep going. Walk on, as the Zen master says. This is our duty in life. And in a certain sense, our life has been partly a waste if we don't pursue that question in some way, whatever it means to us. And this quest will go on, if you like to think of it that way, from lifetime to lifetime, you know. But it is the, that journey of discovery that is the divine perfectly realizing itself. And in a certain sense, God doesn't want everybody to become enlightened tomorrow because then the curtain comes down, it's the end of the game. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's true. They ride off to the sunset, and what happens? You go home. God's not ready to go home yet. There's an infinite play here. All right, let me leave you with this uh, one last advice uh, from Ibn Arabi. He says, when the vision of the real takes place, it only takes place in a mutual way station between an ascent and a descent. In other words, he's talking about a mutual way station between the divine and the human. There's the idea of ascent here and, and the divine descending. So this vision takes place halfway between. It requires both movements. In fact, it's really only one movement, see, because it's just the seeker seeking itself. But it appears to be two movements. The ascent belongs to us. The descent belongs to God. So in a very practical way, that's our side of the task, to make that ascent. That's, it doesn't, it's not literally spatially an ascent. That's just an image. To make that step. And because we are the divine, ultimately. It's, it's like looking in a mirror. If you move forward, the image in the mirror moves forward. If you back off, the image in the mirror backs off. If you turn your back, the image in the mirror turns its back. And that is our, ultimately, our relationship to the divine. 
So I hope that uh, these fundamentals help you on your own quest, your own seeking. Uh, I hope they help as uh, guidelines, as pointers. I hope they help you read mystical teachings and uh, texts because uh, often they can seem a little strange to us because they often they are ancient and they come from cultures that are different from our own. But if we know kind of what to look for, it helps us separate what's really essential in these teachings from some things that are not so essential. You can read through a lot of these texts and they'll also be mixed up with magical incantations for long life and all that. And that's a relative good. You know, the longer your life is, the more the game goes on in this form, but it's not an ultimate good. So to, for us to have a, some sense of discrimination about this is very helpful. And that's one of the reasons I've uh, tried to uh, distill out these fundamental principles and put them in this, as I said, more generic form. Any comments or questions? I have a question. Yes. One thing that keeps popping up in my head, if consciousness is um, longing to know, to longing to be known, if it knows itself, what is, what is it, who does it have to be known by, by us because we're unaware of it? Well, this is why I said this is very paradoxical in many ways. Our language breaks this up. And uh, that's part of our problem. We invent a language and then we tend to believe the distinctions that we make in our language are actually true distinctions. So it's really, I think, more of a question of what's the most helpful way to look at it at a particular uh, place that you're in. One way to look at it is that this is a game of hide and seek. Mm -hmm. Why do we play hide and seek? Because it's fun as kids, you know? And in order to really play hide and seek, you have to truly hide. Otherwise, it's not much fun, do you know what I mean? If, if we're playing hide-and-seek and I say, well, I don't want you to uh, work too hard, I'm going to tell you where I'm hiding, well, that's not, there's no fun in that. So, in that sense, um, uh, that is the original intention of the game. Now, it, to use this metaphor to carry it out, the, the person who goes hides then thinks they're really lost. <laughs> right? And they forget that they're playing hide and seek and they think they they forget who they are, what they're doing and they're lost. The poor kids wandering around, you know. And now it becomes um a serious business for the the seeker to go find that person, right? And you get all these images of Jesus going after the the stray sheep and you know, this is the, you see that's where it all comes from. I mean, these are again ways of thinking about this. But ultimately, and this is the part that cannot be communicated through any metaphor, Ultimately, you are both the hider and the seeker. It's as though you split yourself in two. So uh, people can do this sometimes in a conversation with yourself. You ever have, have a conversation with yourself? So what are you doing? I don't know. I'm a little lazy today. You better get up and get out to work, right? So we have some sense of how this might happen. I mean, that's the closest analogy I know. Isn't it, isn't it also, though, that that's the, the perfectness of it is that it is so real to us because it's not a full and true experience unless we fully believe believe it. Uh, no, the the perfectness is to to know the truth of the situation, not to be deceived. But then, but then you're not. But then you're not. Um, to me, it seems like then you're not. It's almost like like you said about the hide and seek. Okay, I see what you yes. Yes, I, I if you want to say in the ultimate ultimate sense even that is part of the perfection of things. But that is not a helpful teaching uh because 
It's like a teaching like karma can be easily misused. You say everything happens because of people's karma, you know? So then you see a poor person, you say, well, it's just their karma. And it's a very, uh, it can be used in a very disastrous way. The way you can tell if you're using these teachings uh, in, or you're misusing these teachings, you're using them in a selfish way, is if you dismiss everybody else's problems and everything else is just karma or that's just part of the perfection of things, uh, if you can do that to the things that happen to you, uh, then, then that's okay. In other words, when somebody comes and mugs you, you know, uh, you can say, well, that's just part of the perfection of things too. If you can say it in the same spirit that you can dismiss uh, what happens to other people, then actually maybe you are truly practicing a little detachment. But usually this is the, the, the danger of the teaching is that it's so easy to rationalize it. Not that it doesn't have a truth to it. It does. Does that make sense to you? Oh, we went on quite a bit. Let's bring the formal part of the meeting to a close. And uh, you're welcome to hang around, have tea, check out the library, and we will see you hopefully uh, next week or not too distant future. Peace to you all. <laughs>